Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor, foreign cheese lover and recuperating tuberculotic invalid, Thea Lena Dutzi. My, my voice has risen to normal levels. You sound very healthy. <laughs> I'm going to have to think of something else now, because I think the cheese thing is the cheese thing's getting old. I and... dread I dread to think what that something is. Do you know what I'm going to do? Be. I'm actually going to go around everyone in the office and say, what's your favourite Thea story that I don't know? Oh, God. And will I find anything no. doing that? No. Is that a problem? nothing on me. Nothing? Nothing. Clean. <laughs> Join us next week to see if I can dig anything up. Before we can get to the show, I want to tell you a way to get cheap subscription to the TLS. Simply Google TLS subscriptions, click and type pod one in the offer code tab. You can get six issues for just six pounds. You may have seen, if not, I I would commend to you. We've done a little piece about it ourselves. The TLS figures were out this week. Uh, We've risen by 30 percent and we're putting it down to, or I'm at least putting it down to in in a fatally grandiose fashion to this counterculture of expertise we live there in a in a world of rubbish <laughs> democratized flat clickbait and therefore people have a chance to to to, to pay for some journalism that's that's long form so I'm, I'm yeah i'm pitching this this increase as a, a counterculture yeah do you buy it yeah, part, I'm part of it. Yeah, you're part of it and you're <laughs> buying that kind of stuff. Well done. And so if you do um, want to support this podcast, though, particularly not the, the paper itself, please do review us also on iTunes as well. I've said that a couple of times. If you, if you can, it's, it makes a big deal for us. Uh, coming up on this week's show, we have a special issue commemorating the Russian Revolution of 1917 in the paper this week. We look at the latest historical treatments of events that shape the modern world and the artistic outpourings in painting, literature, even slapstick movie making that resulted. Carol Emerson has looked at the writing that emerged in the heat of the revolution and will be joining us. Uh, Phil Baker has written about a British eccentric writer, Colin Wilson, whose talents pitched him somewhere between a genius and a mad old hack. Phil will be explaining more about that. And the great Clive James will be reading a new poem for us. Entitled Anchorage International, its opening line, appropriately enough, refers to the Cold War. In those days, Russia was still closed. The rest is something of a beautiful meditation on memory and mortality. In 1917, the world changed forever. Robert Service, who has reviewed three new history books on the subject, says this week that the Russian Revolution moulded the 20th century. Within a few years, communist governments covered a third of the world's surface and Moscow had nuclear arms that enabled it to bargain robustly with successive American governments. That's what Robert Service says in the paper. 
this week. But those were the days, of course, where Russia and America bargained belligerently rather than secretly colluded as a means of establishing their preferred presidential candidate. But that may be a subject for another day. At the time of the Russian Revolution, it's unlikely that anybody would have been able to predict its success, its scale or its long-term impact. Historical perspective is inevitably a distorting one. Retrospect always provides a narrative arc that will escape the contingent present. And that's what makes the collection, 1917 Stories and Poems of the Russian Revolution, edited by Boris Dralyuk, so exciting. As Carol Emerson notes, it gives us the words and emotions of people in the midst of the crisis, writing without possible knowledge of how the story ends. It seeks, in her words, to confirm us within the belly of the beast to push us up against its heartbeat. It is narrative without tragic consequence. Uh, Carol Emerson joins... Thea and me now. Uh, Carol, was this an exhilarating experience, kind of reading with a sense of dramatic irony denied to the authors themselves? Exhilarating is probably not the best adjective. It was frightening, and frightening for a couple of reasons. First, I did understand how difficult it was to scrape perspective and that we all live haunted by those two concerns that Tolstoy raises in Book Three of War and Peace, namely that it's almost impossible to look at a major event like a revolution without applying a sort of retrospection to it. That is assuming everything led up to it just because it turned out to be not an arbitrary event or a passing event, but a definitive one. So that's the first cautionary that Tolstoy gives us. And the second is that we ignore the law of reciprocity. That is, we assume that Everything works out in some sort of causal way, but at every moment, historical agents are either noticing or not noticing our moves, and therefore, everything is wholly fluid until the last minute. And that's what's scary to me, that uh, the revolution inspired so much, well, what one of my authors in 1917 says, a type of Bolshevik audacity or charisma. And uh, it's a very timely topic very timely topic that when we have a nation in which no one anywhere belongs to uh, democracy by inertia, you know, the sense we had in America that you just wouldn't elect a person like Trump because there was no experience and there were no dedications there to democratic ideals. This was exactly the situation in 1916. The czarist uh, regime had lost all credibility. And what happens when you don't have the inertia of your political system behind you, then it really is absolutely impossible to define what's happening. So I would say I was scared when I had only these texts written by people who were to such an extent in the grip of emotional responses to events and uh, had no perspective. But it's a wonderful way to write a book. It's just a very scary sort of book to read and, and who, and, in 2017. And who are the writers? I mean, because when you, when you look back on this collection, because it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a series of different writers, who are the writers of the Russian Revolution that, that call to your mind having read it? What are the things that linger with you uh, in terms of the, the writing that emerged? That's a very good question. Because, again, most of these people went on to become very different sorts of witnesses. I think the ones that grabbed me the most first was uh, Tefi. That's uh, Lachavitskaya, who was an aristocratic writer and an emigre eventually. But she was able to look at the events 
in a very dry-eyed way. <laughs> and uh, that type of coolness in the middle of very hot revolutionary uh, enthusiasm is is always impressive in my view. And then I also was very impressed with the, uh, what can I say, sort of a Tolstoyan text, that is the ones that tried to talk about this type of revolutionary excitement in a simple and estranged way, even though they were, again, in the center of it, but they were writing sort of fables about what was happening. It's hard to get a fabular or a, a, a sort of distanced, eternal view on an event right when you're in the center of it. And those I actually liked more than I did the uh, millennial enthusiasms of cosmists like Bloch and other Russian poets. Um, as you as you mentioned, Bloch, um, his, his work, so it makes me think, I mean, because this is a period where Russia was sort of poised between old regime and new one and maybe between its kind of more occultive, occultist yes. um, past and the socialist realist um, modernity, I suppose. So, I mean, is, is that kind of, is there a poise reflected in, in the styles and forms that we see here? Is there anything new going on there, a blasting apart or...? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. We're very far from socialist realism, of course. That takes us to the beginning of the 30s. I think what we do have is a sense that when everything comes to the end, to an end in a spectacular and inexplicable way, either you're going to, you're going to pick one of two responses to that. Either you're going to feel doomed or you're going to feel liberated. And I think the uh, authors in this volume very cleverly selected to to represent both sides. Rosanov was one who felt Russia was wholly doomed. That is the reason she got to a revolutionary position was because there were many decades of irresponsible philosophizing about Russia, what Russia was and what her thought meant for the world. A combination of Russia's the best plus Russia has nothing to offer and can only be a sort of nihilistic force. So there were the pessimists who looked at the end as something which was sort of spectacular in a Dr. Strangelove sort of way. And then there were those who felt that anything that comes to an end like this with so much discredited had to give birth to some new belief system that was robust. So it was that apocalyptic or millennial attitude which had been powerful in Russia since the end of the 1890s, more so I think than in Europe. This, um, this is something that's very hard to really stitch into the 20s, which after 1924 became a very rich in many ways uh, artistically vibrant culture. By the time you get to socialist realism, it's quite clear that the heavy boot of totalitarian, single-minded politics has been reestablished of sort that the czarist regime didn't dream of imposing. But I think in the 20s, there were still a lot of people who had lived through this awful 1917-1921 stretch and felt it might prove to have been worth it. I'm struck um, and by by the Dralic point that you, you reflect on that fictional tra treatments of the Russian Revolution are hard to find because the event is too real, too immediate yes. to lend itself to fictionalisation and it occurs to me as we brace ourselves uh, for Brexit and Trump novels en masse, Indeed. you know, marching their way to publishers' houses across the world. Do you think that's a universal law that you've seen really in this collection? It's kind of impossible or very, very difficult and maybe only 
someone of tremendous genius would be able to do it successfully, to render in fiction what is still happening in fact when you are immersed in it, that fictionalization is just too hard a step to, to, to achieve. I think that is true, that fictionalization, assuming that you are modeling it on real events around you, I think that's very hard. I think it is easy to collapse, I shouldn't say collapse, maybe elevate yourself, into other literary genres that are specifically timeless, like fable, like parable, um, like ecstatic religious vision. And all of these play heavy-duty, big-time roles in the entries that Draluk chose. So if you understand fiction in a sort of you know Chekhovian way, <laughs> we're giving you a slice of life as it's unfolding from within its own realistic parameters, then I think pretty hard to do. Now, again, Teffy does it because she parodies it. But yeah. well, satire, uh, otherwise, satire is a routine, isn't it, really? I, I absolutely, uh, yeah. But one feels that that probably isn't the majority feeling. The majority feeling is either disgust and horror of the sort that Zinaida Gibbios felt and all of the other anti-Bolsheviks who had their eyes wide open, or what is called, again, Bolshevik audacity, revolutionary charisma. It's that sense that Zoshinka in his essay, scares you to death when you read it. Strength always at its very heart gives rise to rapture. What in the world does that mean? Strength gives rise to rapture. It means that you're really attracted to rule by decree. You're not attracted to the slow things that happen in a established democracy. And, you know, <laughs> how can one not think about um, this? But it was exactly that sort of audacity. And indifference to actual truth on the ground, indifference to the legal tradition, indifference to separation of powers. That's what impressed the American electorate in November 2016. It's, 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 so it's, it's about revolution, you know, it's mm -hmm. about, but it's also about how power is seized. And there's been a lot of polls since November 2016. A public policy poll happened just this week. You know, uh, barely 50% of this American population trust judges more than they trust Trump. That is, they want a strong man. They mm -hmm. don't like institutions. They don't trust institutions. And the same thing, a very small number, you know, 20% said that if a civilian government proves incompetent, are you, you know, scared about the military taking over? No, you know, only 20% had any problem with this. When that happens, then what it is that runs a society and keeps its extremes in check. We're just so accustomed to that in the Anglo-American tradition that there's something you fall back on that keeps you more or less protected from that type of blankness of value. But also I suspect if, I, if you've never had to fight for it, I mean, I'm struck with whenever you have conversation about freedom of expression in this country, because everyone here has grown up with freedom of expression to, a, exactly. to an almost absolute sense, and I'm sure that was certainly the same is true in the United States because of the First Amendment. Exactly. You've got no real concept of freedom of expression exactly. as, a, as something to value because you've always had it. It's been the air you exactly. breathe. Exactly. It's just like it's like water for a fish. Yeah. And we don't even therefore know how it would feel were that freedom nibbled away. And there's something where, frankly, the Russians have always been better at than us. You know, you had literary geniuses from. Pushkin up through Tolstoy, who just assumed their stuff was going to be read and censored, and assumed their letters were going to be opened, and yeah. you know they they never had any naivete on that, and they kept on creating brilliant stuff, and they made compromises and shoved their stuff nevertheless out into the public or got it somehow abroad and smuggled back. You know, very savvy. The Russians very savvy about this. 
Uh, and uh, I think we've not been very savvy. Well, one of the things that comes out of the, the Trump crisis is this sort of testing of whether journalism matters and how important journalism is. Uh, yes. Is there journalism reflected in this collection? You mentioned Bulgakov. Uh, there's a de- debut in his local newspaper. Right. Is journalism seen as a literary enough response to the events of the revolution, such as it would be included in a collection like this? Oh, that's wonderful. You know, I think journalism is sort of default position for narrative prose that doesn't quite have the peace of mind to become fiction. <laughs> yeah. And journalism has to do the same sort of thing. You know, these master journalists who are able, I think of someone like Remnick, you know, able to write on the cusp and have to, and not just write on the damn cusp, but they got to get deadlines in. You know, they can't just sort of take all their time over their page proofs as long as they want. They have to live in the present and file constant reports on the present. But then you go back, you read it, it's pretty good. That is, it seems to also have guessed its way into a bit of historical perspective. So journalism, good, gifted journalism, not everybody, obviously, who just is a you know gossip, gossip column. Good journalism with perspective. It can be, I think, a wonderful document in the way a diary is a document and a memoir is not. That is, it has to file itself on a daily basis and then just simply see if they guessed right. And even if they didn't, it's like an experiment that fails in science. You know, it's a good positive experiment. If it fails, it gives you good information. And And it tells you what might have happened. And do you get a sense of that in this collection? Is there, I mean, is that, is Bulgakov's piece journalism? I think Bulgakov's probably the best and biggest. And that's because he was a very conservative temperament. And he knew what it was he was chronicling. I think for those who were sucked up in revolutionary charisma, they were sucked up into more absolutist claims. And uh, therefore, they sort of blinded themselves to what was really happening on the ground. And that was never anything Bulgakov had a problem seeing. He, He was very much on the ground in all of these events, although very involved in, of course, the Civil War. You mentioned um, one tale. I feel I just need to clear this up for my for my yeah. own uh, sanity, I think. You mentioned one tale, <laughs> Sasha and Yasha, um, and you say yes. it was a wonderful surprise. So, I mean, briefly, maybe you can tell us what was um, so wonderful and surprising about that. But for me, it was... I was surprised probably on a, on a different level that y- you mention it um, as a foundational text for the socialist realist cult of the missing leg. Is that, yes. is that really a thing? Oh, there is a big thing. I mean, the most famous thing is Prokofiev's opera, which was based on Polyvore's story, uh, story of a real man. And that's the real man whose leg's blown off and he goes back and uh, and fights as a pilot. I mean, I even asked our Prokofiev scholar here at Princeton if this story was known and became a sort of necessary text. But there's a lot of them, even Platonov's Shashlivaya Moskva, Happy Moscow, that is a Moscow metro worker, and she has her leg blown off in some underground explosion and goes back and continues to build the metro. So there's something about blowing off your leg, being invalided, but not being incapacitated for the task. The now, why the leg and why not the sacrifice. arm? Yeah, it's a, it's a bodily sacrifice. And what's so fascinating about that in the Soviet context is it marches alongside another myth, which is the perfect Soviet body. And that body is one that you sort of prime for state service. You keep it away from dangerous privatization areas like sexuality, obviously, and you have it 
redirect its energy into these uh, well-coordinated or choreographed state service projects. So the beautiful body, which belongs to the state, but redirects all of its erotic energy towards these projects, uh, coexists with the maimed body that somehow refuses to accept the handicap that comes with the maiming. This was a pretty important theme in the 30s. Uh, again, Platonov's Happy Moscow and Polyvoy's story of a real man are the most famous. I'm sure if one looked, you could find a lot of other examples of it. Well, this is so I had no idea that 1917 had given rise to this in almost canonical form as it's celebrated in the 30s. Well, listen, Carol, this is a very rich... Uh, it's a, such a beautiful uh, piece, and uh, we're so grateful for it because I, I think um, it's a, it's, a, it's extraordinary thing. It's a very good idea, actually, of the people, the, the, the editor Boris Dralyuk, to put it in this sort of perspectiveless. This is what people were writing at the time, and that is a fresh perspective. Uh, and, I believe so. Um, and it's a great piece. Thank you so much for joining us now. Well, thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk a little more on it. <laughs> thank you, Carol. Bye. Take care. Bye. Um, I think Carol has um, been a worthy breaker of the rule, not everything is about Trump. Because uh, obviously, um, and we see this all we stuff that comes... We didn't get far, did we? No, but actually, she articulated that perfectly. Oh, absolutely. Uh, as to say, 1917, massive transition. And that quote she said, which is a, a, a astonishing, um, strength always at its very heart gives birth to rapture, the excitement of Trump, which of course nobody could, nobody in sort of liberal circles in America could really understand. Mm. Why is this exciting? Because kind of cultural vandalism is exciting, that, that ability to change at all costs and this notion that the status quo is so unbearable, anything that shakes it up is better. And she doesn't do it in the piece, she doesn't labour this at all in the piece, which I think is, is good, but that, that was very convincing as a, mm, an idea. A necessary um, aside. I'm interesting to, it's interesting too, I, 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 um, that bit from Dralyuk that you, Boris Dralyuk, that you quoted about fictional treatments of the revolution of the revolutionary times being so hard to find because of uh, whether whether the immediate doesn't lend itself to fictionalisation. It sort of makes you think of of how... I'm not sure that for me adds up. I mean, I, I guess I think I see what he's saying, but... What writers do, like Margaret Atwood or you know George Orwell, what they do is take what's happening in the immediate and then follow it through. I think it was Margaret Atwood who said that um, you know dystopias are just the present, but exaggerated to their logical, disastrous conclusion. Yeah. So I. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not treated as as current fiction. It's projected into into the future. But it is current fiction. Yeah, but Animal Farm, for example, yeah. uh, was done at the time. It's fabulized in the same way turned into a fable and it was too hot to publish t.s Eliot mm. famously rejected it he said uh because stalin was an ally it was 1945 mm. he said this is too too strong for us he also said that when you look at it it's not that the pigs were wrong you just needed more public spirited pigs it's a great letter that t.s Eliot wrote to orwell saying why they were rejecting it and that the pigs you just needed more public spirited pigs so even orwell putting into a fable mm. was considered too hot Close. to handle and yet, so by pushing into a, a dystopia or the future, you're probably buying yourself a bit of space. Thanks. So people. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. People can, can listen to it. It's fascinating uh, stuff. We move from revolutionary Russia to Britain in the second half of the 20th century and a figure who I did not know very much about. Colin Wilson's book, The Outsider, was published in 1956 and was an instant sensation, selling 5,000 copies a day. Its author was an unknown 24-year-old with no formal education and a huge superiority complex. This is what he said. It was pouring out of me like molten lava. I was writing about myself, seeing myself mirrored in Van Gogh, Nijinsky, Nietzsche, T.E. Lawrence. Wilson also wrote the book while sleeping on Hampstead Heath, convinced utterly of his own genius. Alas and alack, the bubble soon burst and his second religion and the rebel, published in 1958, died a sorry and unmourned death. So who was this man, this pioneer of new existentialism, who went on to write a hundred more books? Moving, as Phil Baker says in his wonderful piece reviewing a hagiography of Wilson by Gary Lackman and a reissue of The Outsider, moving in beyond philosophy into science fiction, serial killers and UFOs. So was he a genius? Was he a Daily Mail hack? Or was he somewhere between the two? Phil Baker joins Thea and me now. Um, Phil, what a fascinating piece and what a seemingly unbearably bumptious yeah. man. Uh, perhaps you might start at the beginning with The Outsider. What was it? How did he write it? And, and why was it so considered to be important when it came out? Um, it was a kind of smattering quite an overview across um popular existentialism and dragging in figures like Nietzsche T. Lawrence and there was just something fantastically I suppose invigorating about it if you read it it does make you feel more alive um and even if you read it well I think it's a good book to read when you're a teenager. I think I read it when I was probably, I feel like I was 13 or 14, but I was probably more like 16. People always backdate these things. Um, first of all, you feel like you're learning a great deal when you read it because you're being introduced to all these figures. And it does give you this his central insight. is quite valid, which is that we could be more alive. We could feel reality more acutely. We could appreciate it more. And, um, is, and, is, and that, is he writing you know, I, from... I can't take that away from him. That's a 
it's a genuine insight. And is he writing, I suppose, from a position of originality from his own lived experience? Or is it an overview of other authors who've been there before him? Was it a kind of combination of the two? It's an overview with a slight element of distortion. Um, I think not only is it a smattering, but it's a little bit skewed. He's very, very selective. Um, for example, I think there's a French writer called Henri Barbousse, which is pretty early in the book. And you would think that the main point of Henri Barbousse was something about, I can't remember, it's either looking up women's skirts or possibly, I think it's actually looking at women through a hole in the wall. Um, But with that as your main introduction to Barbousse, you would never realise that in fact he was an incredibly serious, committed French communist writer in the 1930s, major pacifist, all that kind of thing. But he's been reduced to this... um, sort of alienated weirdo uh, by, by uh, Wilson's very selective so, uh, approach to his work. And so Wilson, he, he, he posits his, his theories as, as new existentialism. In what way it, does it differ from the old um, continental existentialism? Is, 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 there, well, is there a positivity at its heart? Or? I'm not sure it's really existentialism at all. He decides that mainstream existentialism is incredibly pessimistic and miserable. Um, So he's got this extraordinary sense of life as a fantastically positive, exciting thing, but it goes beyond, or it just isn't really philosophy. If anything, it's almost more like mysticism or just positive thinking. In fact, I think he describes the outsider as a defense of religious values. Um, So he presents this genuine insight that we could feel more alive as if he's taking on Sartre and Camus and defeating them. And to set himself up as, as a philosopher, I think, is a big mistake. He's just setting himself up to look ridiculous, like a sort of, um, you know, a sort of William McGonagall of existentialism. That's what he kind of ends up making himself into. Is he a bit of a sued? Because one of the things you talk about is pen trick, where you concentrate on a pen held against a wall until, and this is a quote from him, attention becomes fatigued, at which point a final burst of concentration will give access to the peak experience. I mean, is he just an old suit? Well, perhaps it worked for him. I have to say I tried it and it didn't really work for me. Um, But I'm sure he was sincere. And the uh, the central insight is there that, you know, we could feel more alive. I think the really famous example is Graham Greene playing Russian roulette, uh, which, of course, but this insight is not really original to Wilson, but it's the thing that he harps on about. Um, And it is true. It's only really when we lose things that we appreciate them. And you think, well, why can't we could, why couldn't we have appreciated them like that all the time? You know, there's nothing like bereavement or even breaking up with someone in a relationship to make you really appreciate them. And you think, why couldn't you have appreciated them more when you had them? You know, instead, you just kind of let life go by on automatic pilot. Uh, some years ago, in fact, quite a few years ago, I had a very bad car crash on the motorway. And we both got out of the car alive. And I had this absolutely terrific euphoria just being alive but the extraordinary thing is it only lasted about five minutes (laughs) and then we had to get a taxi back to london from newbury and then within a while we're in a dismal curry house and so within an hour or two life had really sunk back to normal and you think, in a way, what a pity it has to be like that. It's there shame, is this it's a shame you didn't kind of reflex greyness that just creeps into ordinary life instead of these, this intensity that you only feel when you've either lost something or it's threatened. 
Yeah, it's interesting um, that, but what, what comes also across from the pages, though, is for this person who may be preaching positivity, he's kind of a singly unattractive figure in lots of ways. You know, he calls Shakespeare a second-rate mind. Yeah. He says he says Beckett was fucking shit, yeah. a half-witted Irishman. Uh, so this doesn't seem like a particularly positive, attractive character. No, um, he does have this extraordinary arrogance, um, and that's really the beginning, I think, of what's not to like about him. This massive self-regard, he's convinced, he was convinced he's the most important writer in the world, most important living writer. His work will be studied, he says, in 500 years' time. And ultimately, there's something a bit naive about that degree of self-regard. It's a kind of Adrian Mole quality, cranked up to a kind of Nietzschean intensity. Um, and his philosophizing, or particularly his autobiography, it's all peppered with phrases like... Um, and then one of my most important insights came to me when such and such, you know, or one of my most original and, and striking ideas I developed in the course of X, Y, Z. Um, so, yes, he does have this extraordinary um, sense of his own genius, which I think put people off him quite early on. It's um, it's impossible to discuss um, Wilson's life without taking class into account, though, isn't it? I mean, because there's a sense in which when he when he says these things like I am the major literary genius of our century, it's sort of reminiscent of of the Beatles and Oasis saying yeah. oh, bigger than Jesus. It's, it's, it's a persona. It's a front. Yes. And I think it also comes, which I think he he just occasionally touches on this himself in his autobiography. It does come from having a certain sort of working class background where you just don't meet anyone very intelligent. And it does give you this delusion that you might be the only intelligent person in the world. But I think a lot of people with that background grow out of it. Um, but somehow it stayed with Wilson, um, this uh, sense. He and just, is, is he always trying he to have a... He looked around and he just looked at what he, he called the vegetable mediocrity all around him. But in a sense, that's as much a kind of, if you like, a sociological thing as a as a kind of a mystical thing or a transcendent thing. But it's also, must, is it not connected, though? Because he seems to have the, the capacity for being hateful. And as we're talking about him, um, he does remind me of Ayn Rand um, in the way that he's, yeah. kind of, he's treated as a serious philosopher, whereas, in fact, he's, in some senses, just re-couching kind of truisms and platitudes yeah, in, a in a slightly mean-spirited and, and hostile fashion. And, you, you know, you say he gets into Holocaust denial at, at one mm. point, which is not entirely surprising when you have this very self-involved, very hostile, very angry view of the world. And it reminded me, and Ayn Rand really sort of sprung out to me as a kind of someone who took a attempt to philosophise into an area of kind of miserableism and, and hostility. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I do. I think that's absolutely true. I think the... Um, the fascist tendencies in Wilson were first noticed in the 1950s by Ken Tynan. And although he's very positive, really about his own capacity for excitement is really what he's positive about. He's not remotely positive about society as a whole. He thinks ordinary people are just like sleepwalking animals. And this goes with the politics he was involved with in the 1950s, um, largely forgotten there was a little movement called the Spartacan movement, which was um, really the invention of a friend of Wilson's called Bill Hopkins. 
It was a kind of anti-democratic elitist thing. And Wilson was championed as well by Oswald Mosley. And most of this stuff is completely missing, unfortunately, from the present book, The Lackman Study. And with the Holocaust denial, I think in a way that's very typical. He blundered into it, I think around, I think it's 1974. He was reviewing a book about the Third Reich in Books and Bookmen, I think it was. And even though it wasn't under review, he just threw in the details of this other book he'd been reading, which said the figures for the Holocaust just don't add up. And in a kind of Aspergery way, Wilson then gets bogged down in doing the maths, but without noticing the book he's working from has actually been published out or without really taking into account the, the real sort of context, that the book he's working from has been published out of a P.O. box number under a false name by a deputy chairman of the National Front and was, um, I think, later subject to criminal prosecution. But it, it's somehow typical that he doesn't notice the implications of that and, and just in a very aspergery way focuses on the figures. And, and it's, it's key, isn't it, I suppose, in terms of what, what has been left out of, of this book, um, that there has been this... Because this book is, is targeting a, uh, an American very leadership much, rather yeah. than a British one. And I suppose that there's been this kind of bifurcation in his... Um, in his legacy, hasn't there? In, 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 in England, in the UK, I guess he's, he's disparaged and, and sort of yeah. dismissed, whereas in the, in the US, he, he's not. He's taken surprisingly seriously as a kind of new age, I suppose, thinker in America. And he does have a strong following. Um, he really does. It's also, I think it's a political thing because uh, one of his messages would be that, for example, no one would need to be poor. Poor people, it's probably their own fault. Um, you know, because they don't—they're not thinking positively enough. That kind of thing. Um, but even in Britain, he does have—he's certainly not taken remotely seriously um, by anyone in the mainstream. I don't think, or very few people. But he does have a real hardcore—a small band of really devoted fans. I think there's a little publishing house entirely devoted to his work um, called, the, I think, the Pauper's Press. And people have done bibliographies of Wilson. Um, they, he, there is something about him that really attracts a few people for some reason. They don't have, well, yes, I can't say more than that. And was yeah. he, but he was a Daily Mail hack as well, uh, uh, you know, which is, I suppose, rare from someone who who's begins his career being praised by um, Cyril Connolly and regarded as, you know, new wave of British philosophy yeah, and kind yeah. of spends 20 or 30 years churning out sort of those strange features that you get in the mail where there's questions to which the answer is no. No, yes, indeed. Uh, did this yeah. year's floods prove Nostradamus yeah. right, etc.? Yeah. It's, it's almost, to me, coming to it completely fresh. It's almost kind of extraordinary that he's even taken seriously at all. Yeah. I think the, the sort of American readership are unaware, probably unaware of his later British journalism, but it was... he. His later work, by and large, is complete nonsense. It's an enormous number of books. He wrote over 100 books in total, and he's moved on to true crime and murder, UFOs, life after death, aliens, Atlantis. Um, and so much of it is actually just... Obviously, he had enormous energy to churn it out, but so much of it is essentially nonsense. I remember in one of them, there's something about a man called Osawiki, who I'd never previously heard of, who moved a big marble statue just by the power of his mind. Um, now, I think if he'd really done that, he'd be a household name if there was any proof that he'd done it. But it's as if, I don't know, Wilson adopted gullibility as a sort of methodology 
for the later work because I suppose it did make it more exciting to a certain sort of audience. Well, and his, his male stuff is full of the usual poison that you get from thinkers like Wilson, bring back the death penalty, all that kind of stuff. Well, it's a, Phil, uh, thank you so much for joining us now. And, and uh, it's such an interesting piece because, uh, you know, it, as we're talking about it now, it feels faintly unreal, doesn't it? And, yeah, uh, yeah. He's, I think if he didn't exist, someone could have invented him as a character in a novel, yeah, really. I think yeah. that's right. Well, you've brought him to life um, uh, very much in the piece. So thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers, Phil. OK, bye for now. Bye. Thank you. Uh, my favourite line, my favourite line in the whole thing, uh, theory is um, Wilson himself had a declared ambition to live to be three hundred by superior mentality, <laughs> blaming people who died for their own laziness and lack of vitality. But in fact, he succumbed to complications after a stroke at the age of eighty-two. It's perfect. It just sums up so so much. I've never really heard of him, I, I, to be honest. And and you hear the outside and you think of Camus mm. and you don't think of of. Colin Wilson. Did, did he mean anything to you? Was no, it... I mean, I was vaguely aware of the name, but I, I probably couldn't have placed him if you'd asked me to. And, and reading this piece, I, I just, it's, it's fascinating. You can't, I think, especially because his, his career has had such an interesting trajectory from the, as you said, you know, starting out very much wanting to be one of the literati, you know, a kind of a man of ideas and uh, someone who brought existentialism to a British audience and, and, and made it cool or whatever, I don't know. Um, how he then twisted into into this vitriolic male conspiracy theory stuff. I can't help but wonder whether that, that later stage of his career was the ultimate his ultimate attempt to, to give a two fingers up to the, the literary scene that had sort of rejected him, well, had completely rejected Having him. Having welcomed him, point. which is kind of the worst thing, yeah. I think, because they kind of welcomed him with open arms only to reject him. You back. can only imagine him at, at a party, you know, a literary gathering, just feeling so awkward and seething with rage at these people who just don't yeah. get how important he is. I just don't understand how this can possibly be taken. To, but, you know, Ayn Rand's exactly the same. People do, I believe, take Ayn Rand seriously, don't they? They mm. think that think she's an important writer. When, of course, if you read any of her books, they're just mad and unpleasant and mm. really boring. Mm. My favourite Ayn Rand reference, you'll be pleased to know, is in Dirty Dancing, the film. Did you know this? <laughs> no. Do you know the film Dirty Dancing? Uh, sort of, of course I can't you do. Say. Of course you do, <laughs> don't, don't, don't lie to me. But anyway, you do know uh, the film Dirty Dancing. Anyway, there's a really unattractive character in it, this rich boy who gets a girl pregnant and um, oh yeah 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 the really unpleasant yes. character anyway i know it well enough to know that of course yes. you do. it's all coming out now anyway at one point in the film he gives uh, a copy of i think it's the fountainhead or atlas it's either one or fountainhead or atlas shrugged to this girl and says some people just matter more read read this book i've annotated the margins and that's kind of ayn rand and i feel colin wilson's mm. the same thing a certain type of crank will be really excited by this Gibberish! Mm. This notion that you can have peak experience by yeah. staring and, at a pen. And five percent of the population who are dominant and should therefore dominate. Yeah, and it's very fascistic, and you yeah. can see why. It's no surprise that he gets into Mosley and all of that world mm. because he is clearly saying people matter and others don't, which is what what Rand did as well. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe we didn't get him. You know, we just didn't get him because, as as he said, the British are what was it? The British are totally brainless. <laughs> So <laughs> it's an oddly cheering. It's an oddly cheering piece. I mean, I really do commend it because it's an extraordinary, extraordinary life and extraordinary weirdness. And and like you said, you absolutely. Someone needs to make a film. I keep on saying this about everything that we talk about on this show, but a, a biopic should, about this. We should spin off into a production. Let's have a production company. A production company. Lovely. <laughs> we shall move on.
Before we hear from Clive James, let's first thank Carol Emerson and Phil Baker. And let me remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week this year with thoughts on big pieces in the TLS and important cultural and artistic issues. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've been discussing, plus much more on the Russian Revolution. Stephen Lovell on Rasputin, which may or may not have a headline referencing the Boney M song. I would also... Oh, it can, do, it, can it, I... It does, though, Theodore. It, it does, I know. I, 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 say, I say may or may not. <laughs> I was going to move on swiftly to uh, an excellent piece by Wendy Slater, I think very interesting for the alternate history elements in it. Yes, and actually, she, she, Robert Service writes about three histories and then Wendy Slater is writing about Robert Service's mm. own book. It's a very good piece. Uh, Julia Van Gert on Revolutionary Slapstick and Zinovie Zinnick on the New Revolution exhibition at... The RA. Elsewhere, we've got Jules Smith on the poet Eileen Miles, Anne McAvoy on Harriet Harman, and Pippa Goldschmidt on Philip K. Dick. There's a kind of authoritarian, mm. dystopian Feel theme throughout, isn't it? Feel it's in the air. It, 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 indeed, as Carol <laughs> Emerson made very clear. Uh, you can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to read it all and learn more about our print and digital subscriptions. And do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers, including Catherine Laporta Shiro on how that man, he's back again, Trump will get on with China. Mark Rowlands on animals as metaphors in literature. And 20 Questions with Sarah Baum, who rather nobly finds it too cruel to criticise any great books. So she's not having a go at Dickens or Eliot or like many others who've taken those questions. She actually wants to be, if she could pick any time to be a writer, she's picked early 20th century Tibet. Wow. Does she, I haven't read this piece. Does she um, expound on... Not greatly, but it's an interesting time and place to be doing. Early 20th century Tibet. Tibet. There you go. Check that out. Uh, Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and review us, please, on iTunes. Do join us next week where she'll be looking at Jewish cultural identity and how it has shaped by tragedy, among other things. But first, a real pleasure for us. This week we publish a new poem by Clive James, a long-term and distinguished contributor to the TLS, entitled Anchorage International. It's a, it's a lovely, moving piece of writing on memory and mortality, the familiarity of life's beginnings and endings. Clive is here to read it for us now. But until next week, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Anchorage International. In those days, Russia was still closed. My flight would cross the pole and land at Anchorage to refuel. Many times, by day or night, I watched them shine or blink, that pilgrimage of planes descending from the stratosphere down some steep trail. As if I'd come to stay, I lived in that lounge, neither there nor here the still point of transition. I would pay for drinks with cash. It was so long ago. But now, again, it is a place I know. I've changed a lot, but these seats look the same, except there are so few of us who wait. It's like a party, but nobody came. There is no voice that calls us to the gate, for no procession interrupts the sky. It seems that this time I will not move on. I have arrived with nowhere left to fly. I need not leave. I have already gone. There's almost nothing left to think about except the swirl of snow as I look out. 
here in this neutral zone, at last we learn that all our travelling must come to rest in stillness. No way forward, no return. We once thought to keep moving might be best until we reach the end. But it was there from the beginning. Darkness gave the dawn its inward depth. The lights in the night air that came down slowly were us being born alive. The silver points in the pale blue of daylight were us dying. Both were true. I bought your small white boxes marked Chanel at Anchorage. I must have used a card. Did I? I can't remember very well. In these last feeble days, I find it hard to fix a detail of the way things were and set it in its time. Soon there will be only one final thing left to occur. One little thing. You need not fear for me. It can't hurt. Of that much, I can be sure. I know. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Through this place, I have been here before. 